Hi, and welcome to the TRU Alumni Podcast, hosted by me, Dustin McIntyre, TRU Alumni Manager at TRU Alumni. I'm joined today by Dr. Bruce Daner, an independent scientist who's working on one of the big questions in human inquiry. How did life begin? Dr. Bruce Damer's academic studies began at TRU in 1979, or as it was known back then, Caribou College, in the nascent computer science program. He currently serves as principal scientist at Digital Space, associate researcher at UC Santa Cruz, associate of the NASA Astrobiology Center, member of the International Society for the Study of Origin of Life, and chief scientist at the Biota Institute. He also served as visiting scholar at the University of Washington and as a member of the faculty at Charles University Prague. He received his PhD from University College Dublin, MSEE from the University of Southern California, and Bachelor of Science from University of Victoria. And in 2019, TRU alumni made him a Distinguished Alumni Scientific Research Award. Welcome to the podcast, Dr. Bruce Damer. Thank you, Dustin. A pleasure to be here. Absolutely our pleasure. Uh, you know, we've, we've had you before, and it's two years later, three years later, it's wonderful to have you back. Dr. Damer, what have you been up to for the last three years? Oh my gosh, uh, despite the vast changes globally, uh, our science marches on. We not only were able to get our, our hypothesis into publication, it came out in print just three years ago, two years ago, but it's now been tested all over the world. And recently we were out at a place called Fly Guys in Northern Nevada, which is a wonderful multicolored geyser, siliceous geyser that shoots up out of the desert floor. And we were filmed there by NHK TV Japan and the BBC in two trips. And we bought along a little slide tray and put our little reactants on the slide tray placed it down in the geyser environment. And then I pipetted little bits of water into the little wells on the slides. And forming in those wells were what we call protocells. And they contained the stitched together pieces of RNA. And we were able to put those under the microscope and, and they basically glow with a fluorescence that shows you that long chains of RNA have formed inside the little compartments. So that worked in a, a geyser at, just for your science geeks out there, for a neutral pH, kind of not acidic, which we've been doing in New Zealand and other places with acidic water. And by golly, it worked at neutral pH. So now we think perhaps life can start in a wider range of environments on exoplanets throughout the universe than we thought before. But your hypothesis, just for the, the people that don't know, was that life started in fluctuating hot spring pools, and you are now at the stage where you are finding evidence of this. Yeah, we're literally out in the field at hot springs that would have been similar to the ones that would have been on the earth four billion years ago, trying the chemistry. So every time we bring out little organic compounds, we know that they were coming in through the atmosphere as the earth had just formed, you know, maybe 500 million years before, and there's a dust. There are meteorites coming in, a lot of them, and a kind of a dust is settling down. And that dust and meteorites contain organic compounds like amino acids and carboxylic acids. And we, we know this because we have collections of these things. We have 
four and a half, four billion year old meteorites that if you grind it up into a powder and put it into, into water, it forms membranes and inside the membranes are organic compounds from the meteorite formed in space, not, not a living thing, but the building blocks of living things that were coming down like snow in, into these little pools and then they get concentrated and they create a primordial soup and in the soup emerge these protocells. So what we did at Fly Geyser was to simulate that by bringing those actual materials out to a real geyser, doing the wet dry cycling we think is the engine, the pump that has to drive the process forward. What does that mean for life on other planets? I mean, you've just said that these asteroids and meteorites contain the building blocks. You know, if there's hot water that cycles, yes, does that mean that fact, this uh, exists other places as well? I was a team well? for Mars 2020, which is called the Perseverance Mars rover, which is currently on the surface of Mars. And we made the argument to land nearby a known hot spring on Mars. And these aren't gushing with water now. They're like a preserved old Yellowstone that's 3.7 billion years old. Because if life started on Earth in this way, and there are a number of our colleagues that believe that that's the most plausible place, then if it started on Mars, the rover should be able to drive up to one of these hot spring outcrops, take a drill core sample, or image that, and, and look for organics within those silicate minerals that are just sitting there under the red dust of Mars. And if we're lucky, send a core sample or a rock sample back to Earth so that we can thin slice and look for microfossils and look for evidence for organics, similar to what was found in Australia about eight years ago in the Pilbara, where they found an ancient hot spring, 3.5 billion year old hot spring, sliced all that apart, imaged that and saw evidence for microbial communities in a hot spring on the earth three and a half billion years ago. So it's all matching up. And that what it means is that all these exoplanets which are being discovered by Kepler and other missions, rocky worlds that have an ocean, but a lot of landscape, volcanic landscape where these kind of geyser fed hot spring, freshwater hot springs can form could be orable. They could start life and then become habitable, inhabitable by life. And the, the new term orable we're coming up with now is like a world that can get life kicked off. Okay, so maybe not sustain exactly. life, but can start the, the process. You advocated for perseverance to land by we one of these the perhaps hot springs. Were you successful in that argument? Potentially selected, but we did not persevere. Uh, for our site, uh, they, they chose a lake bed, Jezero <laughs> Crater, yeah. uh, which is where Perseverance is now rolling. And ironically, it turns out that Jezero Crater may not be a lake bed. It may be a basaltic uh, lava environment that's fairly young. So what they're doing now is driving. So that's actually kind of a disappointment. It's not an old landscape, but they're driving up to the footwall of this beautiful delta that water clearly was washing into that environment and they're going to climb that delta and through by climbing they're going to see the ages of Mars rocks and then there's an extended mission that we hope will target some areas that might have had hot spring activity so 
if all goes well, it will be rolling on Mars for years and it might actually roll right up to a hot spring like the one we promoted at Columbia Hills, which did not win, win the selection process. Still hope that they could make it somewhere that you could, you know, find some piece of perhaps prehistoric life, as it were. So you were talking about spacecraft, and you are also involved in some other space exploration. Can you talk a little bit about Shepard and its ability to harvest or capture asteroids and how that perhaps extracting the resources in space rather than having to bring them aboard yeah, a spacecraft uh, everyone radically change uh, the way we travel? Everyone now is familiar with Elon Musk and his massive... H.E. Wells type starship, Absolutely. which is a magnificent project and actually connected with Elon fairly recently last year. And one of the challenges that they have is that they have to launch the super heavy booster with a refueling starship to refuel a starship in orbit several times. They have to continuously launch fuel so it can go to the moon or Mars. I mean, eight, nine, 10, 20 launches to get it fueled up. And when it gets to Mars, it needs return fuel so for people to come back. What we've come up with in 2014 is a way to harvest that water ice that we know is buried underneath the surface of a lot of asteroids, Ceres being an enormous one. It's, there's more water on the asteroid or protoplanet Ceres than there is on the Earth. But with smaller ones, we envelop it in a balloon structure, which has black and white kind of patterning on the outside that we can rotate toward the sun, collect heat, and warm the interior, introduce a gas to the interior, which will, through friction, stop the asteroid from tumbling and spinning, because most of them are. So we can then manipulate it with jets of gas. We can move it around inside the balloon. Then as it gets warmer and warmer, water ice will just kind of start to evaporate or sublimate out in the environment. We pump all of that vapor and, and concentrate it in tanks and split it into a fuel. And while we're doing that, we use the same gas to drive the asteroid forward or backward and lower its orbit, bring it closer to Mars or closer to Earth. So by the time we're close to Mars or Earth, we have 10,000 know, tons of water ice liberated into these cartridges, which then would go and refuel, produce like gas stations all over the solar system. And that will allow Elon's architecture to work, Starship. So perhaps mid or end of the 2020s, we'll come back to them with a sort of an architecture when they're more ready, when they have the demand for fuel. And Shepard can also liberate minerals using something called the MOND process and pull nickel and iron out of these metallic asteroids and make 3D parts in space at the prediction and create biosphere. So instead of melting all the water off, we create a liquid globule that inside the rocky material, it's like a small earth and we can introduce uh, life there and light the interior and create like a terrarium out of an asteroid that then is harvestable. So all the major components to build Stanley Kubrick's station or get Elon to Mars, which is fuel and air, and parts to build a big station with, and then biosphere to make uh, shrimp burgers out of. (laughs) 
<laughs> so they're all, it's all coming together for interplanetary travel. That's, it's incredible. So since we've uh, talked to you three years ago, what has changed in the Shepherd program? Where we were developing the idea a lot further. And one of the things that came from Elon was a kind of directive to us. I want you to show in your architecture how the architecture allows me to get more tonnage to the surface of Mars, because that's the problem I'm trying to solve right now at lower cost and lower risk. So that's a sort of directive for us. And really it's a matter of timing. I'm actually currently actively seeking an engineering team lead that can help us do that model and develop a simulation of the system so that we can go back to SpaceX as they get more ready or other organizations because we need to fly test flights. So we worked out we, we could fly a test flight with a little CubeSat and a little inflated balloon that we'd release a, a space rock into and try to manage it in orbit for 30 days or something. And then the next test flight would encapsulate, would release and encapsulate a little target. And then we get bigger and bigger and bigger. And then we eventually go and grab uh, an asteroid that's close. It's at one of the Lagrange points. We grab a rock from there and bring it back to the space station. And the space station grabs onto the little mini shepherd we're calling Fetch. Everything's a dog metaphor on this. And then it would grab it and then bring the little asteroid material inside the ISS. So it's a gradual staging thing. And we could then develop a space junk cleanup as well, an asteroid relocation into graveyard orbits, because we could encapsulate, uh, not an asteroid, rather encapsulate a big geostationary satellite that's gone dead, put it into a graveyard orbit, which satisfies international agreements and puts it in a safe mode. Or if there's some space junk that's going to be a collision hazard and create this huge Kessler effect you know, that we saw in the movie Gravity, we go and encapsulate that, and with the gas, we move it to a safe orbit, or we deorbit it into the Earth's atmosphere and just start to manage the space junk problem. So that's where we think we can actually get Shepard stood up and running to solve this critical problem that's emerging. So it really could solve two issues. That, that's incredible. I, I know space junk is becoming an issue and the solution I'm sure is very, very challenging. You can't just shoot them out of the sky or go get them, but it sounds like you're creating a, something that could, but also has uh, another motive altogether. So, you know, a smaller shepherd collects a satellite and that shows to the world, hey, we could actually probably go yep. get an asteroid yep. with this as well. I think that's really, really neat. I'm curious about your personal intersectionality of science and the metaphysical. People won't see this video podcast. It'll be audio only, but you live in a really unique setting. And for those that don't know, you know, you often go to Burning Man and give talks about things of that nature. You say you seek inspiration from alternative states of consciousness. Tell us a little bit more of this. How does this inspire well, you? Know, you? How it, does this uh, drive goes all you know, your science forward? Being a kid in Kamloops. So most kids are pretty dreamy and pretty out there. Awesome. If you're around a five-year-old for any length of time or when they're playing airplane or when they're in their mode, they really are taken over by something beyond just imagination. They're in the world. And I noticed this. I really liked that when I was five, six, seven, eight, nine. And when I was nine, I decided I would keep that going. I wanted to keep those worlds going. So when I would 
have a stimulating day and I close my eyes at night and I would see all this patterns and flashing. And sometimes we think of that as, oh, it's just a lot of kind of mental noise and we want it to stop. Well, instead I dial the, the dial, a mental dial to get it to go brighter. And so instead of saying, hey, I need to take a nap or, you know, this is all nice. I said, no, there's, there's pictures in there. There's creatures in there. There's worlds in there. Somehow, if I can only get the dial right, Keep it going, and we had uh, we didn't have color TV, going, but our neighbors yeah. did on Kirkland Place in North Kamloops. And I thought, oh, that's cool. It's got multiple things you can change the colors on it. Because it's an old Viking TV set where I used to watch Apollo launches in the sixties you know, on the color TV. And so I kind of trained myself to do that, and I trained yeah. myself to let it resolve into who knows where they were coming from. You're nine years old, but suddenly there were spaceships. And there were creatures that just appeared and they were completely wild. And I, throughout my teen years, I drew them, thousands of drawings. Some of those drawings ended up becoming cartoons and articles in the Canlos Daily Sentinel, by the way, or Canlos This Week, which was. That's right, which is reflected yes, in your DAA video so as well. And we'll post that in the show notes. In my mid-teen years. I started having these downloads, these thought experiments. And one of them was after walking out into the hills, uh, the sagebrush hills near Arizona Drive in Sahali, I had this epiphany that where did life come from? Where did all of life come from? And my mind sort of probed back the billions of years I knew it was. I was about 14. So I've been watching some science TV shows and I read about Albert Einstein, that Albert Einstein was taken over by these thought experiments, he called them, where suddenly he's running alongside a beam of light and he watches the light compress. And that's where special relativity came from when he was 16 years old. And I thought, well, this is how science is done. You get these downloads. And as I was walking back to my parents' house, I got my first thought experiment, which I call sort of an endogenous vision or tripping experience where a bundle of molecules appeared right in front of my consciousness. And I thought, what is this? And it was the question, the embodiment of the question of the origin of life that I had just asked. And it was a puzzle. It's like a Rubik's cube almost moving, but in molecules. And I said, oh, wow, it's like super bright. I can see it. Sort of a mind's eye type of mystical thing, but a very gearhead nerdy thing, right? And I said, to, I said, well, maybe I can talk to this thing. And I said to it, how did life begin? Or how did all this moving balls and sticks in your Rubik Cubeness organize into a living thing out of just a jumble of tinker toy parts? And it came back to me with a question of its own, which was figure out how, how I made a copy of myself. And then I said to it, well, it doesn't make any sense because you're obviously a machine, but a barely working machine. And if you're gonna make a, a manufacturer an automobile, you need a big factory to do that. And I don't see a big machine around you making a copy of you. How can you make a copy of yourself when you're barely organized? And it sort of winked at me, if visions can wink at you, it said, work on it. And, and I worked on it all the way to 2013. I had another yeah. download where it all just came, just in a 45 minute thing after doing some meditation, the whole system came and it was all these little machines called protocells, all getting together, sharing chemical reactions and then 
breaking apart and then going into the pool as the wet dry cycling happened. And then the machine assembled itself out of these components, out of the network, out of trillions and trillions of interactions along lipid highways. And the machine just stood itself up into the living microbial world. Yeah, and if it, it had a built-in built memory, it didn't know about. By selection. Basically, Darwinian, pre-Darwinian selection lifted the machine up. And so that became our first publication. And now it's a full hypothesis that's lifting big machines, self-assembling, but driven by energy and by the hot spring process of continuous inputs, inputs, inputs. And in a sense, we're still doing that because we, we get up in the morning, we have our tea or coffee, we pulse our system with energy, we go become active yep. and we become in a rest state and our molecules are constantly reasserting themselves and regenerating, repairing. And life is still this way. We're a big mass of protocells, living, living cells that are constantly in cycling and everything around us is in cycling, all driven mostly by energy from the sun that pulses the system every single day, similar to that pool being pulsed by the sun and the energy inputs and the drying down and then the getting together, um, everything going out and getting tested and then coming back together. You know, very philosophical and metaphoric, but this all came from this blend of visionary experience, scientific reinterpretation, testing, know, going to the gearheads, from the Buddha heads to the gearheads. And this is, I think, how you can make revolutionary science work. It's not taught a lot in academia, I don't think. And, and I find it incredibly interesting how you've kind of blended the two so naturally together and they both make sense, you know, both in a professional academic setting and also in a, a Burning Man setting, right? You can speak kind of the same Thank language you. at both. And I think it's very interesting. Tell us about uh, your time at Caribou College. You, from what I understand, uh, were in one of the first kind of computer processing programs at a very young age. You mentioned before we started recording that you were sneaking yeah, in. So, so I talk was to tall us about, enough about that, that I thought I could pass as a graduated high school student. And so I snuck in and started taking a, an evening class at, TR, well, at Caribou College in 79 and Terrible I, college, I sort yeah. of started in a mixed program and then I met uh, Derek Chambers who was the first computer science professor in Old Maine so he had the classroom and then right next to the classroom was a PDP 11 computer behind a, a screen and like 10 or 12 terminals run uh, by my friend Wes Wesley Cole. Yeah, so Wesley West, Cole West was a, Cole, a student that was actually running yeah. that PDP-11. He had a, another student, a female partner, and I, I don't think she was at the DAA event, but they were two running this little lab. I basically skipped out of my German class to go into this computer science class. And the year before, Caribou College only had a teletype terminal or a punch card input terminal down to UBC. And if I'd started then, I would have said, this sucks. There's no way. But because Caribou College had invested in this used <laughs> PDB computer and they had a Teledon terminal, the old Canadian Teletext terminal, and these, these things, I got hooked. 
because I could actually make software that would make images on a screen and do an architectural drawing program I did. And Derek gave me extra blocks and time on the computer. I wrote a phishing thing that forced everyone to log out and then it created a fake login screen and people entered their passwords because they it basically <laughs> said system going down for maintenance, but it wasn't. And then it created a fake login screen on all accounts and it captured everyone's password. And I didn't get busted for that. I got like quietened down and given extra time. So uh, all these kinds of things, and I got really hooked yeah. on it in 1981 into 82 when I went to UVic. For our younger listeners, I recommend you Google what a PDP machine is, what he means by 11 stations blocks. You know, there was only a very limited amount of bandwidth available, and it all had to drive back into Vancouver. So there wasn't a lot of everyone couldn't log in at one time and be on what yeah, we call the no, internet no a much different time right Bruce? whatsoever and there was one personal computer that Derek got which was a trash 80 from tandy radio shack and it was like off limits they wouldn't let the students near it but i built a collection of these machines since that time in my barn here on the farm at h and oaks uh, was fifty thousand pounds of vintage computer hardware including trash 80s and the predecessor to the PDP 1134. So I got hooked on collecting vintage computer history. Well, that's where you started. So you might as well keep going down that road. Bruce, where are we gonna see you? What are you doing for the next year? So the next year? year is pretty exciting. From you? I'm starting a, a podcast. I've had a podcast called The Levity Zone, which has been my personal diary for the last decade there. 75 shows there and, and the listeners can find them all at Dr. Bruce in the Levity Zone. But I'm starting a full-on podcast called Four Billion Years. The time it took for us to be created on this earth. It took four billion years of a lot of happenstance, a lot of struggle, a lot of just random stuff happening for humans to be sitting here in front of microphones talking about it. And I'm going to be interviewing all the people who've been thinking about this, the deep time nerds, geologists, philosophers, spiritual thinkers, origin of life chemists, astrophysicists, all the people who think about that, how we were created, our true creation story, actually, which is emerging in our time. You know, with the James Webb telescope, we'll even see the, the cosmic creation story now. And so that'll be a whole new podcast starting probably later this spring of this year. That's one, one element. Amazing. And here on the farm, we're building out Gandalf Hill. And I sent a, a picture book of this Gandalf dragon house back to Weta Workshop in New Zealand. And I had a tour there when we were doing some science hot springs in Rotorua, uh, science in their hot springs. And I was given a private tour by the founder of Weta. And he's a really cool guy. And we ended up in Peter Lyon's foundry with all the swords from Lord of the Rings. And they handed me Gandalf's sword, which is called Glamdring. There's a nice picture of the three of us there. And they said, you're a spitting image of the young Gandalf the Graying. And <laughs> yes, for those that can't see, you have a beard down to uh, below uh, your chest. Much since uh, I was at fantastic. TRU in 2019. So I sent them the picture book. So I, I literally uh, asked them if they had the plans for Gandalf's house, which is a joke because Gandalf was a wanderer and he didn't have a house. 
but they thought he deserved a house after saving Middle Earth. And so we co-designed this eagle shaped with a dragon wrapped around the base, scale, be scaled, multicolored three-story house, which I now live in with Catherine. And uh, so we've now been developing Gandalf Amazing. Hill all around it with gardens and things like that and the animals and uh, the barn. You know, we're just up from Santa Cruz. And this is in, in Redwood, Redwood Forest, Forest in California, in is that between, right? So over the hill this way is Apple, Netflix, Google, like 20 to 40 mm -hmm. minutes. And then down that way is the coast, uh, UC Santa Cruz, where I'm a research scientist and beautiful beaches and everything. It's quite an exquisite place. And we're in a little area called Boulder Creek, little town that time forgot that the 60s, it's still alive here, folks. Yeah, and it, it reminds me of Vancouver Island. So you, you fit in born. very nicely. I went to UVic, but then I grew mostly grew up in Kamloops and they went back to UVic. And, you know, my parents were from, my, my mother was from Parksville. And my father's father flew airplanes and did trapping up and down the coast. And my biological father, because I'm adopted, he was a skipper on the BC ferries. So my, my native environment really is Vancouver Island. And this area kind of reminds me of, I don't know, the, we got the oak trees and we have the big tall conifers and it reminds me of the Victoria and the Malahat type, type area, yeah. Yeah. Well, Bruce, thank you so much for your time. It was an absolute pleasure getting to talk to you. I imagine you're as excited as I am for <laughs> the new Amazon Lord of the Rings series coming out. Thank the more you, Lord of the Rings, the better, I say. And uh, have a wonderful day. Thanks for listening to the TRU Alumni Podcast. This episode was hosted by me, Dustin McIntyre. Technical Productions by Dustin McIntyre and Andrew Skopenko, recorded at Thompson Rivers University in sunny Kamloops, British Columbia, on the traditional territory of the Kamloops Dishikwepnik peoples.